0: and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to the conversation. Hello everyone, my guest today is Will Storr. Will is an award-winning journalist and novelist. His work has appeared in The Guardian Weekend, The Sunday Times, Magazine, Esquire and other titles. He is the author of four critically acclaimed books and he teaches journalism and storytelling in London. He's also ghostwritten top 10 best-selling books for public figures, including two number ones. Which is very intriguing. I have also ghostwritten a book which is absolutely not a top 10 bestseller. And he's he's has your new book come out yet, Will? The book on storytelling
1: it's out in April. It's out in April. You don't have to keep going through this endless uh, biography on my website, but it's, it's like you're boring me, so you must be... I just, stop there. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Well, you know your own biography. Other people don't. Many of my readers are in the States, and they may not be familiar with you.
1: I'm sure they're not, yeah.
0: So your new book is called The Science of Storytelling.
1: That's right. Yeah. So it's um it, it's based on the, the 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 writing courses that I that I give mostly in London and uh, they they emerged out of my previous book which is called The Heretics in the US it was called The Unpersuadables and that uh, and that was a book that looked at why why do intelligent people end up believing crazy things and the answer that I kind of came up with was that the brain is a this you know it's a storyteller and 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 the the most important story that it tells is this heroic tale of you and um and it, and and it critic and sort of tends to uncritically accept any kind of fact that uh, flatters that that heroic sense of who you are and so f- f- that, that that was really interesting because um i started to think about the brain as a storyteller and and and, and that kind of changed the way that i would approach writing so i tried i started to teach that so so it's, so it's a it's a it's a course for writers and storytellers based on science and so the so the book is based on the course so we so basically the book is based on selfie and the heretic so if you've read either of those books you're going to be familiar with some of the stuff that's in the science of storytelling um but there's lots more in there too um but it's all really a, a, about how to tell stories but as i say based on based on brain stuff
0: i absolutely can't wait to read it i recently read the storytelling animal oh yes who is that by?
1: I can't remember but 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 I quote him in the in the science of storytelling uh, he talks about um how they've done a studies about how when we dream even when we dream
0: Jonathan Godshall.
1: Godshaw, that's it yes 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 so if you like the storytelling animal I will I will I would hope you'd like the science of storytelling um it's a bit more uh, you're a writer so, so so it's a bit more pitched at you at the, than it is at the kind of general market but it's uh
0: Fantastic. And I want to come to London and take your courses.
1: Oh, <laughs> that would be wonderful. That yeah. would be so
0: much fun. But since that book isn't out yet, obviously I haven't read it. And I'm afraid I haven't read any of your other books, although now I'm planning to. <laughs> <laughs> but a book that I've recently read and what made me aware of you, I saw I saw an article about it that you'd shared, which you published in Quillette. Hmm. And among his other merits, Will Store is a Jordan Peterson look-alike.
1: Oh God! <laughs>
0: <laughs> when they see that little stamp. Um, stamp sized photo with your article everybody thinks that was peterson
1: oh it's so annoying uh, somebody said i I, I don't usually read my comments but like <laughs> but, but I did see one and it said this guy is playing jordan peterson cosplay and it was so and and and, and, uh, and uh, so my wife is the editor of cosmopolitan magazine in the UK and they've just done a massive feature on they've just done a massive feature on jordan peterson so they sent one of their sort of senior writers to hang out with jordan peterson and meet the people because it always sold out events and it was a really good story it's a very balanced story it was, it was it was basically are our men in pain and is it our fault which i thought was a really brave cover line for my wife to put on the front of the magazine anyway so there's a massive great big um uh, spread of um jordan peterson in the magazine and underneath her instagram everyone's saying he's just like your husband he looks just like your husband so, so it's <laughs> 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 yeah it's kind of yeah a bit, bit, bit weird i think i think that because you could
0: have served as a as his body double if jordan wasn't available i think that's why
1: everyone, it's so many read the interview they're very really disappointed when they found out it wasn't actually jordan peterson some bloke from england yeah
0: well as anybody who follows me on twitter who's listening now may know i am not an enormous jordan peterson fan
1: oh really interesting
0: although i do think he's quite a silver fox So I would take it as a compliment that you are.
1: Well, my wife has a crush on him. So, you know, know, what are we going to do? How practical.
0: (laughs) So if you should die prematurely, she has a potential replacement then.
1: (laughs) I'm not sure. Yeah, well, maybe.
0: (laughs) Okay. So the book that I have recently read, which is how Will came to my attention, is called Selfie. My God, what is the subtitle?
1: Oh, that's a good question. So in the US, it's um, how we became so self-obsessed of what it's doing to us. And in the UK, it's been changed to how the West became self-obsessed. So it's it's different depending on where you are.
0: So I was really interested in this book. So I recently read As I think everybody who follows me also knows, I recently read Darren Brown's book Happy. I'm sorry if it seems rude to praise another writer in your presence. No, at all. It's like telling your date that another woman is beautiful. (laughs) But I'm quite evangelical about Darren Brown's book Happy, which which is largely about the Stoics and Stoicism. But Brown's book has a lot to say about the cult of self-esteem. And Brown traces it rather further back than you do. So, so the examples he gives and the angle he takes is completely different. So your books are very complementary on this topic. Oh. So his book takes a historical and long-range history. He does these kind of romps from Plato to the present day in history. Hmm. And it's more history of philosophy that he's interested in. Wow. Uh, whereas your book does quite deep dives into recent history from the mid-1980s to the present. But um, he he traces the self-esteem cult back a bit further to the positive thinking movement. The thing which I took from it, which is the bridge to your book, is that, um, I mean, I've always been very suspicious of this kind of idea that you can be whoever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it. Just think, just have self-belief, and the universe will grant your wishes because, first of all, it's bollocks and and secondly um secondly, I feel it's rather it's rather callous because, as you both point out, what if you fail, and thirdly, there is a kind of callousness towards other people which is implicit in that, since it suggests that people who are unfortunate. People who are struggling, who don't have, you know, the job, the finances, the wife, the husband, or whatever, then it's their own fault because it's so easy to get those things. You only have to believe in yourself. So they just lack self-belief. So they're either kind of silly because they haven't taken this easy step, or they're to be blamed. So one of the things about your book which really fascinated me is that you go into the political side, the political ramifications of that. Shall we start there um, with, uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about neoliberalism, how this fits with this topic, or start wherever you like.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, in Selfie, I, I trace it back to the ancient Greece is where, it, where, where I kind of say it has its roots. I think it's important to start in, in ancient Greece. So, so I mean, I am not familiar with this other book, Dan Brown. It sounds amazing. I will definitely read it. Um, but, 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 I, uh, but, but, but I'm I'm much more about the kind of psychology, uh, and and so I started in ancient Greece because, uh, you know, it's, it's been a kind of uh, a. A, a, a kind of one of these accepted givens that the kind of the Western personality begins in ancient Greece for a long time and then there's this amazing body of work um, most famously Richard Nisbet but lots of other researchers lots and lots of other researchers have have, uh, have done work in this area um, um, looking at um, how kind of culture a kind of cultural personality emerges out of the physical landscape and so the question is why did this individualism this idea of individualism emerge out of the landscape of ancient Greece and so the idea the idea that the, the, the thesis is that, um, um, there's a, kind of a, a few different reasons, but one of them is that ancient Greece was this kind of rocky landscape. It's it's it, 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 it's mountains descending to sea. It's ro- it, rocky rocky islands. So there's hardly any good soil there. You can't be a farmer really. You can't raise livestock um, in, in, in any great number. So the landscape forces you into being kind of a hustler. You have to be a small business person. So you have to make you know tan hides or make olive oil or write poetry. Um. So so uh, or uh, you know it kind of forces you out to sea. So you're you're now a um you're a fisherman and you're you're kind of fishing and also because of that landscape it wasn't like a one coherent landmass civilization it was you know it was made up of around a thousand individual city-states so it was kind of it was kind of atomized um uh uh, uh, atomized landscape and people were sort of going from from one place to another place so 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 that meant that, that 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 to to get along and get ahead in that in that world you had to be a self-starter you had to be somebody um that 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 didn't necessarily particularly rely on the group you had to rely on yourself to get going and and do what you could with those kind of four four olive trees in your backyard or whatever it is and so because being a self-starter is how you got along in that environment. Being a self starter becomes a um, kind of social ideal. They begin to lionize the idea of the uh, of the self starter, of the of the of the individual over the group. Um, and and you know, because it's individual you know, individual uh, civilizations people are kind of hopping from one to another so ideas are being swapped around philosophical ideas are being swapped around debate becomes a um a, a, almost like a, a sport that's that's done everywhere um um uh, and from this landscape you get of course the you know the olympics you get uh uh um uh, idealized forms of male and female beauty in the market square you get this idea that, that that um one of the one of the ideas that aristotle talks about was that everything in nature is naturally moving towards perfection and that includes humans um and in order to to become kind of perfect humans need humans need to the he talks about them um about carrying out their daily lives in the spirit of ennobled self-love and they lionized education and they would educate themselves and improve themselves and it would become more and more perfect so you can see how out of that landscape emerges this idea of the individual and, and, and this ideal of the individual. Um, uh, and it kind of feels very modern and you can, you, can, you can see the West and feel the West emerging from, from all of that. But what's really interesting, because that sounds a bit like a, a very convenient just so story, like, oh yeah, sure. So, so, so what the psychologists do is they compare people uh, from the West and, you know, from, from cultures that are... It of- sounds
0: very similar to Jared Diamond's ideas in Guns, Germs and Steel um, Jared Diamond's thesis is a little different because it's about why certain countries became wealthy and, and developed technology, why certain country, countries developed technology. Um, Diamond's thesis is a little different. It has been, um, I think it has been rather substantially um, rebutted by David Deutsch and others but there's certainly some truth to it.
1: Yeah. So, so, so if I can just sort of talk about, because, so, because so, this is very much about how, how you see the world, and about culture. So, 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 so it's not about success. It's about, do you see the world as made up of individual pieces and parts? Are you an individualist or are you a collectivist? Do you see the world as one big connected organism? So, so the opposite of ancient Greece was ancient China. So while, whilst Aristotle was walking around talking about, um, in, you know, things moving towards perfection, um, uh, it, Confucius was walking around in ancient China. Um, uh, who, uh, and so China's the opposite landscape. Uh, huge landmass, undulating um, uh, um, land. If you were born in ancient China, um, you were probably going to be a farmer, um, either growing wheat um, or uh, growing rice or being involved in a huge irrigation project or massively team intensive. Um, Team-intensive industries. So, in order to get along, get it, get it in ancient China, it was most important that the group was functional because because it was the group working together that enabled uh, everyone to survive and thrive. So, you put the group first, and, and what they do, I mean, and then there are all kinds of different um, directions into uh, uh, kind of evidence for, the, for this idea. Um, uh, 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 and I talk about a few of them in, in selfie. So, one of, the, one of the really amazing ones is that they um, get people from West, the West and people from East Asia into a laboratory and they put glasses on them that track the microscopic movement of, the, of, of their eyes, their cicades. so how their foveas are scanning their environment. And they show them a picture, an animation of a fish tank. And this animation of a fish tank has one individualist sort of flashy show of fish at the front and lots of other fish in the background. And they find that the Westerner, their, um, their, their eye will, 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 will relatively rarely stray out of that individual kind of fish at the front. And whereas the East Asianer is constantly scanning their environment, you know, it's constantly going between the fish and everything else. And when we take the Westerner out of the the lab and say, what did you see? The Westerner um, is more likely to say, well, I saw a fish. Uh, but the East Asianer is more likely to go, well, I saw a fish tank and there are a bunch of fish in there and there's a fish at the front. So so, so they're literally seeing a different environment. One is seeing, uh, uh, is focusing on the individual components and the other is focusing on this kind of complex um, uh, relationships between everything. And, 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 and this has really important ramifications for how you, for your values, because then what you, what happens is they say, what did you think about that big fish at the front? And the Westerner says, well, that was the boss, that was the leader, that was obviously the, the main fish, I like that fish. Whereas the East stationer is more like to say well i felt sorry for that fish because it had obviously been ostracized from the group and it was all alone and that was bad and i felt sad for it so so so, uh, so that's just sort of one way and, and another way in is, is, is they've done this amazing analysis of the way um uh newspaper reports are written in in west versus east And one of them that i write about in the in the book is is looking at spree killers uh, and, and they find that western newspapers tend to report spree killers as if the, the the fault was in, lay in the individual. This individual was a faulty, bad, evil individual, and they were, and they did this because they were terrible people. Whereas in the Chinese language newspapers, it's it's all about uh, not all about. That's am uh, overstating that, but, but but there's lots more information about the situation. He he, has, he had an argument with his boss. His marriage is falling apart. He was bankrupt. All the situational forces that that, that uh, kind of conspired to force that speaker to do their thing. So so from all these different directions, you're seeing. Um, lots and lots of evidence that actually that, that there is some truth to this, that that, that that who we are to a significant degree comes out of our landscape. Um, uh, and so you mentioned neoliberalism. So sort of fast forwarding from two and a half thousand years ago to sort of 1980. Um, obviously, we're not tied to our physical landscape anymore because we're much more technologi- technologically advanced. We, we can kind of do what we want to, to a degree. So, so for my kind of theory in the book was, well, okay, so, so what, what? if it's not the landscape, what is it today that is the kind of controlling, the deep controlling kind of subsonic force of our, underneath our culture? And, and I thought, well, it's the economy. Because as I'm sure you know, when we're born, humans are born with semi-finished brains, with half-finished brains. You know, our genes do a lots of work of wiring us up and then we're born and we, the, we're experience expectant. The, you know, the brain knows it's going to have 20 years of experience to build, to complete its process of building up who we are. Um, and so it's getting that information out, of, of course, out of environment and our culture. And so it's as if the brain is saying, who do I have to be in this specific place in order to get along and get ahead, those two Great human drives, and, and and the answer to those those questions these days it really comes down to economy as, as far as I can see, and so up until um, it, what surprised me doing the research in this book was finding out just the amazing extent to which. Uh, In the mid part of the 20th century, Britain and America were were, were actually quite collective. I mean, we're we're, we're still still big individualistic societies, but we went through a a much more collectivist phase um, and we were kind of knocked into it by these great crises, by the Great Depression in America and then the two world wars. And we all became more collective. So over here, we have the welfare state, and the national health service was set up. Um, of course, in the states, they had the New Deal. Um, so it's very, very similar ideas: the GI Bill, um, uh, uh, high taxation, unionisation. Top tax rate in America was like ninety percent at one point. And so, when, uh, and so, so uh, and then everything. St- so it's very collectivistic, and of course. Who emerges out of this collectivist economy? Well, first of all, it's corporation man and woman in the 50s and 60s with in their monkey suit. This is the world of novels like Revolutionary Road and The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit um, and then they have children and those children are the hippies so really really collectivistic people um, uh, who you know if you think about who the hippies were anti-materialistic anti-ambition fuck the man smoke you know whatever it just uh, again you know very collective and anti-individualistic anti and then and then what happens is, is in the 1970s the economy starts falling to bits for a, kind of a million reasons that economists still argue about it all starts going wrong so so, so so the, so, the governments of the West have to come up with a new idea through which to to to, to kind of to, to to run out, run the run our um, countries, and the, the idea that Thatcher and Reagan um, uh, sort of fall upon is neoliberalism, and and so the best way to kind of describe that is just to sort. of Paraphrase Margaret Thatcher. She was interviewed in 1981 um, by the Sunday Times, and they said to her, "So, you know, so Margaret Thatcher, what's your, what's the big plan? Uh, what, what, how are you going to save us from this nightmare?" And she said, "Well, um, the things that annoyed me about all the policies over the last, a you know, few decades has always been towards the more collectivist state." And she said, um, and, "And so, uh, and she said, uh, the, uh, she said, the the object, the the project is economic, but the object is to change the soul." And that was a really sinister quote because the the idea was we, was we we're going have this economic project to get away from collectivism so we're going to maximize competition wherever we can find it we're going to get rid of the welfare state as much as we can we're going to get rid of regulation for banking and business so um uh employers aren't kind of parents as i, I suppose in effect for their um uh, staff we're going to get we're going to attack the union so we had the great war in the uk between the miners union in the states it was the um, air traffic controllers um union you know great symbolic battles that kind of destroyed unionization. And so that's what they did. And so the, the answer after 1980 to that question, who do I have to be in this place in order to get along and get ahead, suddenly and dramatically changed. And and you see, you, you, all you've got to do is think about who we were in 1965, 1975, versus who we were in 1985, to see the massive impact that had on us as a kind of collective, as, a, as, a, as a, our cultural identity. And we've gone from these collectivist hippies in the 60s and 70s to 1985. we you know strutting down wall street pinging our red braces saying greed is good i know that's a massive generalization but we you know when we talk about cultures we we have to kind of generalize so, so you see the massive power that, that the economy has it changed everything and, and thatcher was absolutely right you know the object is economic um but the project is to change the soul she changed our souls like we are all neoliberals now america just voted in a few years ago uh, just voted in a you know a businessman as a as a president uh, people are kind of talk about you know it's, it's a world of gig economy uh, when i was in silicon valley researching heretics um in, these young tech geniuses in in their 20s were, were you know talked about the idea of a job for life as if it was some awful tragic anachronism uh, and, and they, were, they, they, they loved the idea of hopping from google to apple to facebook to whatever uh, you know um so so, so 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 that's what she's done i mean they're not just thatcher of course reagan too they changed the economy and that's changed who we are so it's a very long answer, but that's the whole book now. <laughs> so i have just giving you the whole book.
0: <laughs> you should still read the book. The book is very densely packed. I just want to emphasize that to anybody who's listening, that the book is really densely packed with really vividly told specific stories. You explored this through quite a range of different environments.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you talked to an expert on suicide in uh, Edinburgh. Yeah. I was quite surprised to find that the book began with a discussion of suicide. <laughs>
1: it was definitely a risk it was definitely a risk yeah
0: it was extremely gloomy and i almost stopped reading at that point but having paid for it i continued
1: oh, thank god for that yeah i do wonder if it, if it was if the risk paid off but anyway yeah
0: it seems like many people have read it and then you also visited a monastery in scotland and you spent time at the eslan foundation in california i think those are my favorite parts of the book the stories at esalen and you talked in detail about ayn rand and john Vasconcelos.
1: yeah yeah it's really a history of the western self is what it is with a with a kind of a focus on 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 the 20th and 21st centuries because i think that's just naturally what people are more interested in it's it's more about us but yeah so so, that, so so what i wanted to do was um as much, as far as i could Almost go on a sort of a, a time traveler's journey and experience what it what it was like to be a westerner at various points in history. So the monastery I went to was up in the north of Scotland. In the in the, in How the
0: interesting. I didn't think of it that way, but now you say it, it makes sense.
1: Yeah, I should really. Uh, yeah, I should lay that out a bit, a bit <laughs> clearer. That's what I was trying to do. Uh, and so, so yeah. So I went there to 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 more, to more. Um,
0: more astute readers will have noticed, and it's nice to keep it implicit.
1: Yeah, so I wanted to explain, you know what was it like to be a Westerner in, in the Middle Ages, you know, when 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 Catholicism, because Christianity was was the dominant idea. What was it like to be a Westerner in California in the sixties and seventies when we were in this collective state? And so, so these were the as, as near as near as I could. So, it, so the the, the the monastery I went to, they they say they still live. They still live life exactly as they were they, they were doing um, 100 600 years ago I think it is and in Esselen I, I I specifically picked the course the max which is the most like the um, events that were taking place in the 60s and 70s in in, in Esalen. So, so 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 as near as I could I, I I kind of did that sort of time travel thing so I, um, so I couldn't go back to um, our the savannah unfortunately um but then uh so, so 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 it was really about you know the monastery and then um uh, the esen institute and then went to silicon valley to kind of catch us up with now and and, and hang out in sort of some hang up hostels in san francisco and, and actually down in i think it was in cupertino or was it mountain view one of the two
0: mountain view is where google is I think that might be a good segue into um, you publish an extract of your book in Quillette. That article is called The Death of a Dreamer, and it's about Austin what was his surname?
1: Austin Heinz.
0: Austin Heinz. Yeah. Yes. He was a tech entrepreneur, young tech entrepreneur, visionary. And like many people in tech, also very socially awkward, possibly autistic. And he was just hounded on social media. And by all accounts, by his sister's account, he was very upset and affected by the kind of dogpiling that happened to him on social media.
1: Yeah. So this was this was a a part of the book which... um... I mean, it, it sounds it sounds melodramatic, but it's the truth. I couldn't actually talk about this for a while without choking up. I, it really, it really upset me. Um, uh, I can feel myself getting emotional now talking about it. I, I, I it, a truly for for me, a kind of heartbreaking story. This guy, um, it's, it's like so, um, so, so, so he, yes, yeah, so as you say, he, he was a tech entrepreneur who. Um, uh, I suppose we can say he, he didn't have the, the best social skills in the world like lots of like lots of uh, tech um tech geniuses like people like that that social skills aren't their thing and, and that's that's just who they are um uh but he 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 gave a presentation uh at a at a tech conference um talking about his uh his idea for um printing DNA so you could you could um The idea was that you can – not now, but at some point in the future, his firm Cambrian Genomics was working on this technology that that you could basically design and create life forms uh, and you could print out the – uh, or you, you create the DNA and, and 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 sort of grow life and and, and as a kind of test case for, the, for for this idea, they took some DNA from a firefly and put it in a plant and they actually made glow in the dark plants. So this stuff was working and um, so it's very exciting and the, and he and he had the attention of all the you know of the Google guys of. Um, who's the PayPal guy, the, the libertarian chap?
0: Peter Thiel.
1: Peter Thiel. Yeah, he was invited to Richard Brunson's proper island. So he was, you know, he was being taken very seriously by people. Um, by all accounts, um, uh, this, this, you know, the, 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 they, they certainly t- took what he was saying seriously. And then he was asked to um, do a conference, a presentation about his conferences it's online. You can see this thing. It was actually, I think they embedded it in the Quillette um, extract, actually. Yes. And um, so, so so, one of the things that he did was he, he was approached by a young woman um, in her early 20s who had this idea to use his technology um, for, um, uh, to, for a health uh, product for women in which um, – in which, if you had a sort of a bacterial infection in the vagina, you could send them a swab, and and they could somehow use the technology to make a bespoke uh, a bespoke uh, uh, cure just for you. Uh, and and one of the ideas that Austin, had, well, they had this technology that um that, 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 that I, I I don't know how it worked. It's not my kind of area, but 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 they, they 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 could make bodily smells smell different. So one of the ideas was that we we can we can make we, we we can let you know that the medicine is working by, by making this nice smell. And that was just one of the ideas that he threw out there. And and so the the the, the tech press, a member of the tech press was in the audience that day and, and decided that this was um, in his words, astonishingly sexist, and uh wrote uh what I consider to be um a, a really unfair account of the talk and and, and put it online. uh uh, uh, in some basically saying that that austin heinz was a sexist and he was this sort of tech bro who decided to use all his you know privilege and genius to solve the problem of stinky vaginas essentially i mean it's a really grotesque idea but it was an idea i feel that he just sort of invented really i mean i mean you don't don't take my word for it watch austin's presentation and you see what you think of that he was an investor in this company and, he, and, and he, was, he then got criticized because he didn't mention her name and all this other stuff. Anyway, I, I'm sort of doing it myself now and I shouldn't. So, so the, the, reason that, the reason that that is in the book is because, you know, I talk about, is it, it's called Selfie. The book's called Selfie because it's, about, it's a book about the human self. And of course, a big, a big part of who we are as, uh, as people is, is that we're evolved and, and, and we're, we are a tribal species. And, and, and you, we, human beings cannot process reality without processing it in the form of competing tribes the way i think about it at the moment is that it's like a food mixer you put a bunch of eggs in a food mixer turn the food mixer on it's going to do some stuff to those eggs that's what's going to happen and the human brain is the same you put reality inside a human brain turn it on and that's what's going to happen it's going to divide that world into the human world into groups and they're going to be competing groups and it's going to get unpleasant so i really wanted to explore what happens uh, when you put into when you kind of put internet t- t- technology and internet culture on top of that on top of that tribal brain Um, and and this is what happens and this is what happened to unfortunately to austin was that he um uh yeah he he he, once that report was um uh written you know it was that you know it just became this tribal narrative of whites privileged sexist men um, um, insulting and degrading women by implying that their vaginas smelt wrong. that was the that was the story. And it went all over the world. Austin lost all of his investors and finally uh, committed suicide um uh, so, so so that's i mean we should sort of add here that um you know he suffered periodically from serious depression so and this has obviously triggered a, a serious episode of depression for poor Austin so so that's that's that, that that's the story in a nutshell but but it was a kind of sad irony for me really because when the Quillette piece was um written one, one of the decisions i made editorially was that you're in a moral, moral quandary when you're all writing about this kind of stuff because I feel myself, I feel my own tribal moral outrage instincts rising and my blood heating as I'm talking to you because I am the same as everyone else. But but, but you're in a moral quandary because, because I, I don't want to then start a new dog pile right. on the people that caused right. this dog pile. So what do you do about that? And, and one of the decisions that I made was was to write the piece not mentioning anyone's names that were that were involved in the in the in in, in that dogpiling just just stay with the reporters uh i'll mention the, the the titles that they they that they wrote for and then uh, and not not you know do a whole sit down with them and uh, you know in lots of my journalism i sit down with people and i have a big row with them uh in my last book i was having a row with holocaust deniers and all that kinds of other people and it gets quite confrontational don't do that because then that makes it about the, the individuals that wrote these this, this these, the, 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 you know, wrote these articles and I didn't want to do that. and of course when the quillette extract ran, it was the same it ran without anyone's names. Unfortunately, we forgot they, they put the links in and they've taken them out now. But what, then what people started doing was finding the names of the reporters that did this and then dogpiling them, which I thought was just, I mean, I suppose predictable. It was naive of me not to think that that would happen, but I thought it was incredibly disappointing, actually, um, that, 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 that that happened. Uh, because- I feel a bit
0: guilty. I mean, I didn't dogpile any reporters, but someone who I have had many run, run-ins on Twitter, someone with a large platform of Blue Check on Twitter, he wrote this commentary on the Quillip. Article and he kind of said, he said, you know, of course it was wrong of them to bully him, but isn't that wrong dwarfed in the comparison with the evils that Heinz himself was planning to do mm. because he was a Hitler like eugenicist
1: figure? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Jesus wept. He was talking about feeding the world. He was talking about using his technology to grow plants that could feed the world. He was talking I about know. using his technology to grow plants that could suck all the excess CO2 out of the atmosphere and reverse the greenhouse effects. This is what he was talking about using his technology for. To extrapolate from that that he was a eugenicist is just extraordinary. This is why I stay off Twitter. <laughs> I would just get too angry. And then, of course,
0: I... I quote tweeted this guy, and then of course everybody started attacking uh, him. Yeah, I'm going to go and delete the post now after we finish here.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I, so, so, as upsetting as it is to, to hear this story, I would please ask listeners if you're listening, don't you know? By all means, look at the video, read the reports. Maybe you'll think I'm wrong. Maybe you'll think the reporters are right. But whatever, please don't track down <laughs> this and attack them because then you're because yeah. now you're doing it like you know, please.
0: Yeah. No, I I wouldn't do that. But, you know, I could have commented on it without attacking the other guy who also commented, creating a a continued escalation. (laughs) Yeah.
1: That's it. And I, I mean, that's what I was trying to do with this, really, was that, um, was that there was a way of having this conversation without, without turning it into a, an attack. Mm. Uh, and the, as I said, the, the way I did that was by not naming anyone's names. And, it, and I was pleased that it worked. I mean, the book has been out for 18 months now. And as far as I know, the, the, the journalists, none of the journalists involved in that incident knew or were aware that the book was out. It was only when the Quillette piece happened and, the, and, and, and they put the links in, as is their house style. Um, that th- that started happening. So it so it so the strategy worked until that piece. But I mean, I, I'm sure it's all calmed down now, as these things do. But but I felt, uh, uh, you know, I did. I didn't feel good about that. I have to say.
0: I mean, the speech thing. People were misrepresenting it as a kind of vaginal perfume. No, and in fact, it was a scent. It was a marker scent. To show it was a medical product, basically it was a market. To show it was
1: working. To
0: show that it yes, was working. Yes, that's right. That was
1: that was, that was the purpose of it. it, 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 it exactly. Yes. As I say, if you do, and, and don't take our word for it, watch the watch the video. Yeah. For me, it was explained pretty clearly. On I don't am I'm, I'm not sure how you could misinterpret their comments for saying women have stinky vaginas we need to fix that i mean i just think that's the most revolting idea
0: i watched the video There was not the least suggestion of that yeah and as for not mentioning her name i mean if people are going to be lambasted for not mentioning the names of people in an impromptu talk
1: absolutely right i'm gonna be lynched
0: because i can never remember anybody's bloody names
1: well, that's it. I, I, don't think, I don't think he had any moral duty to mention a name. He was just talking about, here's my technology and here's a few things we're thinking about using it for. Here's one of the sweet peach. I mean, sure, mention a name, but don't mention a name. I mean, I, I think we can have this, like you could imagine if it was a a man who'd started up that business, nobody would be saying, you didn't mention his name. It's, you know, it's it's because she was a young woman. Um, I, 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 and the other irony, of course, was was that when, when she came out publicly in defense of Austin saying, uh, uh, you know initially she she was sort of quite critical of him because i i think she was panicking i mean bless her she was 21 i think at the time panicking yeah. about all this terrible press her business w- was coming under but then she she, she 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 you know to her great credit went on twitter and uh, and um Absolutely stood by him and said he's been an amazing supporter, Austin Hines, to me. She was completely ignored by these same journalists who were all lambasting Austin for ignoring her and not giving her a voice. So enormous hypocrisy as far as I can see.
0: Of course. Yeah, I'm doing it again now. I'm getting angry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I wanted to, um, the part of the book where I was most kind of tearful, I had a few tearful moments reading your book and I got a few right. funny looks because I was reading it mostly in public places in, in <laughs> cafes and things. I didn't quite do my thing of crying so much. I, I couldn't see my Kindle, which does happen to me sometimes. But <laughs> I, I was actually quite upset by the beginning I where I always start reading. When you were talking to the Edinburgh psychologist.
1: Yeah, Rory O'Connor.
0: Rory O'Connor, who's an expert in depression and suicide
1: suicide yeah he, he say so say, say he's he's an he's a world expert in um the, the psychological causes of suicide yeah
0: and you were talking about what you called social perfectionism
1: yeah so this is so th- this is uh... I, yeah, I found all this absolutely fascinating and that's why it was at the beginning of the book so, so so, so, there were all kinds of different kinds of perfectionism and going into this idea going into this whole area my assumption was probably the, the same as most people that perfectionism is a great thing it's great to be a perfectionist because it means you're kind of perfect doesn't it yeah. but actually perfectionism is a really sort of toxic thing it, it, it's a really really dangerous thing and the most, the most dangerous form of um, perfectionism is social perfectionism so, so, the, so social perfectionism is about you feel so all, all Perfectionism. So, so the, 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 the 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 definition of perfectionism that I that that that, that I saw was that it's people who are, um, are unusually aware of signals of failure in their environment. So, so, so they're very very aware of any trigger that might make them feel like a failure. That's that's perfectionistic thinking. And everybody, most people are to a certain extent kind of perfectionistic. But social perfectionism is about um, you feel that. Um, um, you have to be judged as being perfect by other people. So I, I have to be the perfect father, the perfect mother. I have to have this person think I'm the perfect employee. So, so you basically, um, yeah, it, it's dangerous because it's all in your head. You're imagining what other people think about you. You're imagining that they think that you're imperfect and you're condemning yourself. For your imaginations of other people's condemnations of you, <laughs> so, so 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 it's so, so it's a really toxic thing, and social perfectionism is is um correlated, well is 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 thought to be um a, a significant trigger for lots of um uh, very damaging psychological um situations, including um suicidal ideation and actual suicide.
0: It's the opposite of the stoic lesson, you know, the stoic thing that. The thing that you can control is your own thoughts, actions, behavior to a certain degree. I'm a Mm. radical unbeliever in free will, so um, that makes it a little complicated. But what you definitely (laughs) can't control is other people's actions and thoughts. And in fact, you can't even tell what their thoughts are, let alone yeah. control them.
1: So it's- yeah, so 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 th- this is where the book sort of all links up, really, because cause the book begins with talking about suicide, because 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 I'm looking at all these sort of worrying statistics there are out there at the moment about body dysmorphia, eating disorder, um, uh, suicidal ideation. Um, all these things seem to be on the up, uh, uh, and the one, um, the one. Uh, not the one but 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 a significant um idea that connects uh all of these unpleasant psychological states is perfectionism so perfectionism so um perfection is a risk factor in anorexia, perfectionism is a risk factor in cases of suicide, perfection is a risk factor in body dysmorphia, eating disorder et etc et etc etc um and so 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 the kind of the working theory was that um one of the things that neoliberalism neoliberalism has done a lot for us. I mean, neoliberalism has uh, and you know and globalization, which is this neoliberal project, has you know lifted millions out of poverty in 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 the third world. Apart from anything else, I mean, it's, so 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 it's not like a I'm not anti-neoliberal. I'm not anti-individualism. I'm not anti-Westernism. Um, but 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 it's this idea that that by but, but what neoliberalism is is, is 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 this highly kind of concentrated, highly focused form of individualism. It, the, the book begins by looking at all these statistics that are suggesting that that things like body dysmorphia is on, on the rise, eating disorders are on the rise, suicidal ideation is on the rise, and so on. And one of the things that connects all these uh, all, all these disorders uh, and, and unpleasant kind of psychological states is perfectionism. So people who are are um, being made to feel as if they're a failure and certainly that's what i spoke to rory o'connor about and that's why we talk about social perfectionism because social perfectionism he's found um it it, um um, predicts suicides he said, wherever we've looked in the world, whether it's from wealthy people in the US to the most deprived people in Glasgow, social perfectionism predicts suicide. And so, my working thesis as I was writing the book was that we're living in this, I called it this, the age of perfectionism. Since neoliberalism, you take away all our protections, you take away job security, and so on. It becomes harder and harder and harder. To, uh, to 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 f- to not feel like a failure. There, there are more and more kind of pressures on us from all the all directions that are making us feel like a failure. Whether it's you know beautiful idealized bodies all over the television, or it's modern gender norms. So so one of the one of the ramifications of the of the, the gender evolutions of the sort of the sixties and seventies uh, 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 is that now you have to be kind of this globally perfect kind of a gender person. Have, a man has to embody all the traditional best aspects of men and women, and women have to do the same. And that's so that's, that's that, that, that's much more difficult now to manage to be an acceptable human because we have all these extra pressures, and, and you know, social media. We have to be the perfect. We have to have the perfect political views, otherwise, we get thrown into onto that kind of bonfire. And and between the the, the the kind of hardback and the paperback coming out, or the and the or and the UK and the US version, there was this amazing study of by um, psychologists that looked at forty thousand students across the US, UK, and Canada, and they found that. Um, between 89 and 2016 um, levels of perfectionism had had grown substantially so the number of the extent to which people attached an emotional important an irrational sorry importance to being perfect had gone up by um 10 percent but the big one was social perfectionism so the way they the way they described so, social perfection was you, you have to dis- display perfection in order to, to secure approval, and, and that had grown by thirty three percent between eighty nine and twenty sixteen. So so, 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 so that that to me, it, it, I felt like it was confirmation that this that there was something to this idea that that, that part of what is ailing us, you know, as as a people is is is, is perfectionism. perfectionism. Is perfectionism is it, it seems to be on on the rise.
0: So returning to this kind of idea of the social perfectionism, one yeah. thing you didn't mention in the book, but I was thinking as I was reading through it, and which came up also, uh, which was also in my mind when I was reading reviews of the book, is that, yes, we want to, as you put it, get along and get ahead. So we want to get social acknowledgement, we want status, we want success, and all of those things which are dependent on how other people see us. But the other yeah. side of the equation is I hate well, I'm going to sound really corny now, but the other part of the equation is that we want to be loved. And the thing mm. with the high self-esteem movement, the movement towards high self-esteem and the fetishizing, the fetishization of self-esteem, is that I don't think high self-esteem is a particularly lovable quality. It's, and it-
1: it's, no, it's not. But I, I, I think I think you've got to differentiate between the self-esteem. I think healthy self-esteem is it, it probably is very attractive because um, uh, you. Uh, healthy self-esteem is that you you feel good about yourself because of solid achievements that you you know and good things that you, you're living a good life and that you're a successful person and so that so so that's that kind of easygoing confidence you can imagine but i think that the self-esteem that we're talking about is that, it, that, that sort of bubbled up in the 80s and 90s is forget achievement forget doing anything you start off with the idea that you're special and you're amazing that's that bad stuff because then then that, that that then that that that's that idea that you're entitled to be treated as if you're wonderful and special and that's that's where it sort of starts tipping into narcissism because that's what narcissism is is a sense of entitlement that I am special I am wonderful so I, I think there are two different things one of the guys that i I, I think Keith um cam cam w Keith Campbell the the, the narcissism psychologist I spoke to, I think he mentioned Jesus. <laughs> uh, somebody mentioned Jesus, but the idea essentially is that Jesus would have had high self-esteem, but he would have probably been a, like a quite a cool guy to hang out with. Like he's not going to, he's not going to have walked in like all cocky and irritating. Um, you, you know, but, so, so, so that's an example of there, there's healthy self-esteem and unhealthy self-esteem. And I think what happened in the eighties was, was was this was this fueling of the, this unhealthy self-esteem.
0: Well, I think it's true that somebody with healthy self-esteem, who's not boastful, who's not bragging, but just seems very calm and centered, I think we are attracted to that energy. But I also notice that, for example, mm. you know, when I write something that is very personal, and whenever I'm admitting vulnerability, I, I used to write a very popular blog. And if I wrote a blog entry late at night when I was drunk and crying and things, and I thought, oh, this is too much... It's ridiculously self-loathing. Whenever I posted those kinds of blogs, they were always the most popular. People really responded. Mm. And I think that people respond well to vulnerability. And I noticed that in the reviews of your book also, because you also do a lot of kind of self-loathing at the beginning in particular of your book and later on when you were talking about your own depressions and you talk about the newcastle personality assessor yeah. test where i think we had very similar scores high in openness and apart from that basically high in everything one shouldn't be high in and low in everything one should be high in oh,
1: interesting <laughs> <laughs> yeah when I, when I met when i met daniel nettle the um the 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 personality psychologist who did the that test who created that test he said to me writers are usually high in neuroticism and high in openness so they're, they're very, very interested in ideas in the world but they're absolutely paranoid and anxious and and that was before i done the test and yeah he, he had me exactly right <laughs> so uh, it sounds like you're a similar similar um similar state and it also explains why creatives tend to be on the more on the left wing because if open openness correlates with being uh, i don't know what where, where you sit on that but you know openness um, tends to predict more left-wing views uh, doesn't it so it's quite interesting
0: but I think it's interesting that after you wrote that almost everybody who commented on your book commented on how much they liked you
1: Oh right, that's good to know. I don't read them. I like. I honestly don't. I, I. It sounds like an affectation, but I can't bear it. So you're. I'm when you're saying the comments, I'm getting scared because I've not seen them. But I was really worried to, to write about that stuff because I've always had this sense that um, when you talk about or write about hating yourself, it's really ugly, and people tend to not like that. So when I, it was the hardest stuff to write because I had to write it. I had to somehow write it without it being just um really off-putting so i'm glad that that, that, that it seems to have and it seems to have worked by the sounds of things anyway
0: yes i i was i was kind of surprised and rather heartened having read the reviews Mm. i read about a dozen reviews of the book and i think in every single review i read people said he seems like such a lovely guy which is a nice thing of course but it's not usually something that's mentioned either way when i was reading Jonathan um, Haidt's book uh, when I was reviewing Jonathan Haidt's book and I was reading other reviews. Um, and I actually uh, do know Haidt a tiny bit now. He is a lovely guy, oh, right. but nobody mentioned what kind of a guy he was.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, because I think in The Happiness Hypothesis, he does write about his depression and his struggles with that kind of thing. And I think he was on Prozac. Was it, was it, was
0: yes, he briefly took Prozac and then he went off it because it made him fuzzy headed.
1: His memory was something. I think you have a vague memory of that. Yeah.
0: He said it, it made him the kind of chilled out, not anxious person he sort of wished he could be. Right. But it's really Greg Lukianov who has had major depressive episodes and who came very close to attempting suicide.
1: Oh, did he? Oh, wow.
0: It was recently the anniversary of his. Uh, he checked himself into a, um, a psych ward um, ah. because he felt that in in a moment of lucidity because he was planning a suicide and he was writing about the anniversary on twitter
1: oh wow
0: their joint book they begin their book the coddling of the american mind with greg talking about his suicide attempt or actually i think with um john talking about greg's not suicide attempt but his suicidal period wow and Lukianov is a huge proponent of uh, CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, right? Which I think has links with a stoic approach.
1: Yeah, I, I've always been interested in CBT. I've never really read about it, but it's one of the, it's on one of the one of those one my, my to do lists because it, because uh, you know I'm, I am really interested in, in in storytelling and the power of story and and my my and correct me if I'm wrong I don't know much about it but it feels like CBT is kind of telling a different story about your your lived experience. So putting a new story in there, almost like a new confabulation in there.
0: Yes. If anybody's interested in CBT, by the way, who's listening, the classic book is David Burns' book, Feeling Good. And it's actually quite a useful therapeutic book, quite a useful therapeutic book. Even if the only thing you do is read that book, he has a website there yeah. as well. I have done CBT. Um, I don't have a suicidal ideation, but I have had a lot of episodes of major depression. What CBT does is it's a kind of close reading of the narratives that you're telling yourself. So it asks you to identify what you're thinking, and then you do anal- an analysis of it. Mm. So you say, okay, when I say that, I'm catastrophizing, or I'm generalizing, I'm mind reading. You know, these people must have thought X and Y, that's mind reading. And there are, I think, eight different categories. And so you identify how your thinking fits into those categories, and then you try to rephrase. So you avoid those fallacies in your mind.
1: Yeah, so I had this this briefly once because I suffer from tinnitus. And um, when I first got tinnitus I I obviously got very depressed and anxious about it and I had a session of CBT and it was amazing because he said to me he said um so so tell me what's it like having tinnitus and I said well I just hear this constant ringing and he said is it constant and I said yeah it's constant I can you know he said do you hear it all the time do you hear it in in traffic and I said no I probably don't hear it in traffic and he broke it down and and it was basically bothering me uh, last thing at night mostly and and he completely right. rewired how i how i saw my tinnitus and and I, I, he always didn't solve the problem but he got me feeling much less depressed about the problem because he got me realizing it's not constant i just I, it, like if i can if i f- concentrate on it it's con- i can always hear it but it's only if i concentrate it the only time i i, I can hear it um, the ringing without really, you know, without concentrating is, um, is, is when it's silent, when, when there's no other sort of background noise. So, so so that was just one session I had. And it was massively, it was just massively effective because it completely, it, it wasn't like a trick either. He was absolutely right. And I was wrong about what I was saying about the, about the tennis. So, it's, so I'll definitely read that book. Thank you for the recommendation.
0: Oh, yes. I mean, you should. And Darren's book is also fantastic. I find the Stoicism, the kind of applied Stoicism, I guess, is the approach. I find that more helpful. So that is the approach that I'm currently taking. I also tried Uh, sort of Adlerian psychology, and I read the book The Courage to be Disliked. And Adlerian psychology also has a lot in common with this. So it's about kind of identifying what you can't control, which is basically, you know, the accidents of the universe, fate, as the Stoics would call it. Chances and luck, and all of those things, which, you know, the, the whole self esteem cult pretends that you can control that.
1: Yes, but my, my, my problem, my, my issue with that, that Adlerian area is that it's in denial of genes. I feel like it's in denial of genes. It's basically saying things like, you know, you're not your past, there's no such thing as trauma. Uh, uh, one of the things that they write about is that, uh, that, that you can tell that, that trauma is a myth because some people who have terrible experiences thrive, so it can't be. A myth, but of course, as i found you know when I found out in selfie was what danny nettle said was that it actually depends on 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 your on your personality and a lot that is into your genes so some people, some people will be will be put through a terrible traumatic childhood, and that will that will motivate them to go. I'm I, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to be a millionaire, and I'll be a millionaire. But other people with a different genotype will will be absolutely crushed by that. So so, 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 but, so I, I read a bit of that Adler in psychology, and to me, it just felt like more of that human potential movement stuff because it was like for me. Whenever you get too far into that self help area, it's always in denial of genes, and it's always in denial of. Um, The lack of free, you know, the fact that we don't really have free will, um, uh, you never hear. um, I actually interviewed a, a, a guy who was an NLP proponent a few years ago. And, um, and, I, and I put this to him, what about genes? and he said, even if it 's true what they say about genes it 's not helpful to believe it, so I choose not to believe it. So I thought that was <laughs> like a, a really um uh, uh, honest uh, you know response I kind of admired the response, and also I could see the truth to it like i you know but 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 for me, finding out about my my the fact that I'm high in neuroticism uh, and, lo- and 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 um, uh, very low in extroversion, so I'm am I'm, I'm, I'm an anxious loner, and that I'm basically going to be saddled with this with anxiety and depression um, and paranoia all my life. Was as I write in the book, it was actually really liberating because I've spent all my life in therapy. I've spent all my life um, trying to fix myself. Um, and, and I've stopped now and I've stopped trying to go to all these parties. I've stopped beating myself for, for not for having, and judging myself for not having very many friends if any friends <laughs> uh, you know I, I, because I, I understand now that there are all different kinds of human beings out there we hear so much about diversity these days but but actually most diversity is under the skin and, and has nothing to do with genitals you know the, our, our personality diversity is enormous um, is, you really learn this being a journalist for 20 years the, the people that you meet and, and I just happen to be a certain kind of human and that certain kind of human doesn't really need friends to be happy it doesn't really need a big social life it's fine and also this you know i'm never going to fix my low self-esteem it's always going to be a problem and so um I, you know i've just accepted that's me now and of course it's not a cure i you know i still suffer from depression and anxiety and all those other things um i've stopped beating myself up for being actually who i am so it's um, um you know it's it's not like a it's not like it's, I'm not. It's not like a, 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 a the, the, that self esteem version of self acceptance where you're just kind of being boastful. I am who I am. Deal with me, suckers. It's like saying, I'm a I'm a flawed and partial human being, like every other flawed and partial human being. Sometimes I'm going to get things wrong. Sometimes I'm going to suffer. Sometimes I'm going to make mistakes, and it's just accepting yourself in all your flawedness in a kind of humility. You know, in a, in a kind of humility to going, well, I'm incomplete, um, as everyone is. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. Have you read that? I was just wondering if you've read that book, Quiet: The Power of Introverts, Susan Cain's book.
1: Quiet. I have. I read that years ago. It's a great book. I really thought that was a really interesting book. Yeah, I mean, because that just takes one. It's a, just a big deep dive into one particular um, personality trait, which is obviously extro- introversion, extroversion. That kind of um, that trait. Um, and actually, uh, yeah, I mentioned, I do quote her in, in Selfie because she talks about the, the idea of the ext- extrovert ideal. And she had this amazing thing about how um, uh, yeah, when personality became this dominant thing in the, in the collective era of the, of the United States, Yale and Harvard had this policy against shy people as if because everybody everybody had to be happy and gregarious and smiley and that was that was our new ideal so i thought that was absolutely fascinating yeah i I thought it was a really interesting book
0: i think that we are well this is one of the things that darren says in his book
1: darren brown yeah i'm I'm a fan of darren brown i've not read happy yet but i'm a big i'm a big fan of darren brown yeah
0: Oh, well, we have that in common. I'm a huge Darren Brown fangirl. One of the (laughs) things he says is that we are very bad at judging what makes us likable. So we do this weird double standard thing. We think that for people to like us, obviously being liked is not the only thing that we want. But it's certainly one of the things. And we tend to think that for people to like us, we need to be impressive. Hmm. But when we look at who we like, the people who I most like, are they the most impressive people? Enriching each other's lives. I mean, this mm. is the George Eliot thing. I think it's uh, George Eliot says something like, um, what were we put on this earth for if not to make life easier for each other? It's something like that. I'm quoting from memory. It's in Middlemarch. I often think about that, that people frame sort of success in terms of how, imp- how impressive they are socially
1: Yes, but but, uh, but, what, but 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 I think that's why. But 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 I think that's why I'd into because because I mean, so this idea of we want to be liked and we want to be loved. Um, I, I think you can be a bit more. For me, you can be a bit more spe- specific about those ideas by going back to that evolutionary psychology and looking at okay, so what do we want? We want to be. We want connection with our tribe, and then once we've so, so that's that connection that we want, that acceptance that we want, and then once we've got that connection with the tribe, we we want the status. So as soon as soon as you as soon as you've made that connection. The jostling begins and the competition begins. And, uh, and one of the things that I, th- I think is really interesting, looking back over the kind of history of psychology since, say, the seventies, eighties, well, fifties, really, since I did in selfie, was that, was that in the in the West we've, uh, I, I, I assume everywhere else too, we've been massively preoccupied with that first one, with with you know with with connection, because it's it's a nice, lovely one. Everyone we just want connection. People want self-esteem is based on tribal connection and all this other stuff. and people tend to ignore that second one, which is status. So when, you know, so once you've got connection connection people aren't happy with just being connected as soon as you've got connection you start that 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 competition begins and you, and you start wanting that status and, and 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 that happiness that we seek is it, it, really based on those two things as far as i can see it, no nobody everyone's connection but nobody wants to be the bottom that you know the, the on the kind of bottom tier of that of that tribal connection everybody everybody wants to everybody wants to um um Everybody wants to kind of be impressive in that way. the the the, the um the, the 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 urge for status has been found to be um, fundamental. It's universal. It cuts across gender, race. For, you know, whether whether you're talking about hunter gatherer tribes that are still in existence or New, you know new york city people people 's um, well, sense of well being and happiness is based on the level of relative status, even more than money so what, what, one of the things that that confused economists f- for a long time was the fact that when a, a nation 's average level of wealth goes up levels of happiness don't go up with it because the assumption is well more money means more comfort more fun more happiness more leisure time but of course uh, uh, what they know now is that the reason the, the reason happiness doesn't go up is because what makes us happy is not money what makes us happy is status and if everybody's wealth is going up everybody's status is going up in tandem so nobody's getting any happier so it's relative status we, we you know when you ask people um in, in surveys would you prefer a pay rise or an increase in status like a better job title um, um uh, a, a, a majority of people opt for the job title so so so, this status thing i think is is, is really interesting and, and and i and um i i i think it's it's it, it, it we don't like to think about it because it, it's ugly but but i th- but i think what i also think is it, it's really true P- part of you know, we're happy when we feel that we are being impressive, but the, the reverse of that is that we don't like other people who are impressive because that means they've got more status than we have and that makes us uncomfortable.
0: And what was it that Oscar Wilde said? Anyone can sympathize with a friend's sorrow, but it takes a, a special kind of mind to sympathize with a friend's success.
1: Yeah. And the the old Smith song, we hate it when our friends become successful. That's, you know, that's absolutely true. And, and, and that's funny and witty, but it's also completely true. And that's because status is all relative. If, it, we, you know, we, we, we judge our level of status by looking around us in our environment. And if our friends suddenly become successful, it's, it's a zero sum game. The more status they have, the less than the less we have. So it, it, it hurts. It's painful. And you, you don't want to admit it. But it's true; it does, and, and and that's because of our evolutionary history. When we were, you know, living in those tribes, more status meant um uh better access to sort of uh, better mates m- better access to better food more secure sleeping sites so it's this heuristic the brain knows unconsciously that if i go for more status i'm going to get all these other amazing things i'm going to get um all the uh, all those other benefits so we go for status uh, and we still go for status and so so that's you know to me that's that, that's human life it's it, it, we, we focus on the connection bit of it because it's lovely and cuddly but really if you look at it the connection's nice but once we've connected the fight is on that's human life
0: yes that's depressing
1: is that depressing (laughs) (laughs) but i also think it's true you know i really do i I, you know i i i i think i think it's true
0: it seems very perverse to me i have a close friend you know who has very severe depression i consider him a suicide risk and i was talking to him you know and he said my life has been a Mm -hmm. failure and i said well but Everybody likes you. Well, not everybody. He's also very introverted, but his small group of friends all yeah, adore him. Yeah. And he is very, very valuable to us.
1: Yes, but 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 so my life has been a failure. What's he I mean it sounds like what he's saying is I mean I don't know this guy, but 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 could you could you interpret that comment as uh, I don't have enough status?
0: Maybe. I mean, he doesn't seem that interested in status.
1: Mm. But 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 it's been found to be a universal. It's, it's one of those wired-in things. Everybody is interested in status.
0: It's kind of internalized, you know?
1: Yeah, it's, it's unconscious.
0: I think it would be, well, um, maybe it's just impossible. It would be nice <laughs> if we could think of success more in terms of, well, there's a philosopher who talks about rippling, in this and the rippling effect is a good influence you have on other people, hmm. and they have, a, uh, in their turn, a good influence on others, etc. Through your words and your actions and your interactions with people, you spread good influence. Yeah. I think that's the best way of putting it. And of course, influence is something out of your control again. We talk about influence as if it were the way we dramatic- grammatically construct that verb is the wrong way round. Say I write poetry and my poetry is influenced by, say, T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot influenced my poetry. Well, T.S. Eliot obviously didn't do anything from beyond the grave. I imitated or alluded to or borrowed from or parodied or was inspired by or whatever T.S. Eliot. I was the one actively doing the thing. Hmm. We put it the wrong way round, and we Place this undue responsibility in the wrong direction.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, and, and it's interesting because when, when mm. that—that's that, how status is. Um, that—that's that, one of the ways that we give st- all status is given. You can't demand status, um, so you know, status is is given, um, uh, and uh, or at least sort of prestige-based status. And, and one of the ways that that that, that, that people give the gift of status is by mimicry. So it's interesting when you talk about your poetry in T.S. Eliot, it's almost, you, you know, you're, you're giving, but by, by a, a allowing his influence into your creative work, you're giving him that tribal status. You're kind of saying, signaling to, 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 to his ghost, you know.
0: We have gone down a long rabbit hole. I have a question for you. So Imran asks, my friend Imran asks, can you ask Will if he thinks the correlation between social media and depression and narcissism is perhaps overblown.
1: Correlation between nar- social media and narcissism and depression is perhaps overblown. Well, okay. So that's a good question. Um, so I, w- w- certainly the state of the science. Um, when I was writing my book was that that was that there was lots of correlative evidence, um, uh, that, that things like exposure to Facebook and Instagram, um, uh, uh, led to were not good for people's, um, mental health. Um, it's the 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 science is de- is certainly still evolving and in fact there was um there was a really interesting uh, study major study published just 2 weeks ago by um co, you know co, co uh, by a university of oxford psychologist partly amy mm-hmm. Auburn. and amy and or- Auburn has been banging this drum for years now um that social there's nothing wrong with social media and it's all wonderful and um this study was published and it was and, and it was written about it was kind of saying um, the, 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 the there was no negative effect fr- from it whatsoever um but it was interesting because when i, I was actually I, I invited to sort of speaking a, on a british news show when that was published about that and and, and, I, and I sort of declined because um it, the, the study was had only just come out and i hadn't had the chance to sort of look through it and i hadn't had, had the chance to for people like jonathan Haight and gene twanging on the other side of the argument to come back but one thing i was curious about was that the study looked at screen time not social media specifically and um of course screen time can mean anything screen time can be watching youtube videos it, you know, Netflix, we know that there's no watching Netflix. Not watching films isn't bad for you, for example. Um, but it was kind of reported. It felt like it was being reported as actually there's no problem with it. But but actually just yesterday, um, as I suspected, Jonathan Haight and Gene Twenge posted. It's actually a, a, a kind of – it's on their Twitter. It's on Jonathan Haight's Twitter. Um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, 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 it's like a rolling literature review. Everything that we know um, for and against this thesis that social media is bad for you. And actually, when they dug down into the detail of, uh, of this study, they found that actually, um, all the, uh, I, <laughs> as I kind of suspected, uh, screen time in general doesn't seem to have much of a negative impact on anyone. But the one thing that did have a negative impact in their study was social media. So, 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 so it does feel to me... The, the, the one element of screen time that did have an, um, a, a significantly negative effect was social media. So, 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 I, I think, I think that, that obviously in all these live scientific debates that we love so much, there are two teams. Um, both of whom are arguing uh, you know both of whom are unbelievably brilliant and smart and <laughs> immersed in the data and we are you know or in a sense doomed to be spectators but 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 on the kind of pro, pro social media um side um one of the one of the things to watch out for is are they talking about social media or are they talking about screen time because they're completely they, they, you know you, you can't you can't talk about screen time and make any um extrapolations about social media because social media is a very specific form of screen time and indeed when you look at this study that was published two weeks ago um, um, according to Tony and Height um they say that 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 it's clear that social media in in their own analysis uh, has a significantly negative effect so i, I don't think i i don't I, I don't think i don't think that it's doesn't exist i think that the data is still evolving and i would be very surprised if i'd be very surprised if um uh if if social, social media ends up having a null effect on people's mental health and psychological state because i think we all know i think we, most of us have this experience of being in social media and it making us feel like shit and of course the plural of anecdote is not data we all know this but but it would be it would be remarkable if um if 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 the experience of almost everybody um turned out to be Incorrect.
0: For me personally, social media—I would say that it's been life-changing in a mostly good way. So much of what I do is only possible because of social media. Okay. I was only pub- able to publish my Tango book, my second book, because a lot of people followed me on Facebook. I had a blog that was on WordPress. When my blog was on WordPress, I had at most four thousand people reading a post, and only one or two people would write comments. And then I started a Facebook account for the blog where I would just post links to the blog and that didn't help things at all. Nobody clicked on the link. But when I started just writing the post in the Facebook status box, so I would write these extremely long essays right there in the status block, the longest statuses ever, like a kind of letter, dear friends, and it loved Terpsy. I used to have a pseudonym until Facebook made me use my real name when they changed their policy. But I got suddenly a ton of readers and some posts would have a hundred comments. And there was all this excitement and interaction. And that led to my being able to tour and teach tango. And at one point I went to the States for five months and I stayed, I traveled around the States and I stayed the entire time with people who I'd only met through my Facebook. And also I got my main Current job through Twitter, through interacting with Helen Pluckrose on Twitter. I also started this podcast as a result of my interactions with people on Twitter. And because I'd been commenting and discussing with people on Twitter, I had really great guests. Jesse Single came on, and Jonathan Haidt came on the podcast, and other people too, because I had talked to them on Twitter. And even when I went to live in India a couple of years ago, I didn't know anybody at all before I left. And all my initial friends in Bombay, I met through Facebook and Twitter. And then when I got to Bombay, I connected with them in real life. And at one point, I actually, I didn't have anywhere to stay. Um, I had a, um, a week and a half that I needed to bridge where I didn't have a place to stay. And this woman who I had never met, who I'd only interacted with on Twitter. And in fact, I didn't even know who she was or what she looked like because she has a pseudonymous account. Um, On Twitter, she calls herself Dominique and she uses the handle Abaca Hepatius. I'm just giving her a shout out now. Uh, But I met up with her and um, she invited me to come and live with her and her sister. So I went and lived with her and her sister in Bombay. And that was just extraordinary. So social media has been... Very much a net positive experience for me, I would say. But still, there are some very unhealthy elements to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, so you've just outlined a really amazing and inspiring narrative about about how amazing social media can be, and I have no doubt that it's true for you and lots of other people um, who have, um, you know, managed to. Um, uh, have amazing experiences sort of via social media, which are the same story. I don't think anybody's arguing that, that those things aren't possible, but of course we're talking about huge generalities. If some teenage girl in Iowa spends t- three hours per day on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, is she, does it make her happier or less happy? Uh, these, you know, I think your your use the word extraordinary it is extraordinary it's like a, an amazing story that you just you just told um, and and, and, I, and I guess I mean as I say I mean may, maybe it's wrong and maybe Twangy's wrong and Jonathan Het's wrong and, and indeed I'm wrong in, in selfie and Amy Auburn and, and, and that crowd are right I, I literally don't know um, uh, but 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 I suspect um, uh, yeah i i i i yeah i mean i i maybe it's about personality i i i spend less and less time on social media these days because it just it just makes me unhappy i i am kind of protected in twitter by an enormous firewall of muted words so i i just i just you know i don't get caught up in any of the dramas i don't get any of the <laughs> any i get hardly any of the kind of moral outragey cultural i used to get caught up in all the cultural stories you know tran you know wh- all or the, whatever the latest thing is and it's like why why do why am i thinking about this you've only got so much emotional bandwidth you know i find and 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 what happens is i wake up turn my phone on and before i've even having my first cup of tea i'm in some huge mental debate with someone it's like you know, it's terrible. It's just awful. I find it draining. And of course, I'm bringing my own bias and experience and prejudice to my own view of the wider world, as we all do. So maybe I am overstating in my own mind, the kind of potential negative effects of social media. But that's certainly my experience is that I find it exhausting and distracting and generally unpleasant. And then you've got the other side of the story.
0: Yes. Well, the reason I tell that other side of the story and I keep repeating it carefully to myself is because I have to remind myself of the positives. It's a little like being in India, mm. actually. This this may seem like an odd analogy, but when you're in India, the mm. ugliness is right there in your face. You're walking down the street and you pass a place that smells really strongly of sewage and there's a giant mm. pile of rubbish and there are people lying in the street who are disabled and there are starving children running around, the ugliness is right there, and it's very noisy, it's very crowded, I'm talking about Bombay now. So when you first get there, it's this massive culture shock. But after a while, you stop seeing that ugliness Mm. quite so much, and behind it, you start spotting all these beautiful things. Crumbling, but very magnificent, colonial art Mm. deco architecture. And India is kaleidoscopic, so every little block of Bombay is its own world. You go out to buy milk and it's an adventure. People are living each their own mm. different life there on their little spot in the pavement. Here's the guy who's been mending watches for 50 years and who's completely mm. devoted to his craft and he's sitting there cross-legged in the street or on a windowsill. And here's the pan seller, and here's a temple and mm. right next to it is the gurudwara and around the corner is the agiari. And I mm. feel as though with Twitter in particular, the bad mm. stuff is in your face You go on there and people are saying rude things to you and fighting with you. And I do notice that I have a tendency to enjoy recreational anger. And I have no idea what that weird, perverse, thing is about
1: i noticed that you're always rowing with people <laughs> because it's like so, so the difference is if, if, if i was to get into that I'd, I'd be thinking about it all day and ruminating on it and 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 getting angry and then getting remorseful and feeling guilty and embarrassed and then angry again and i wouldn't get any work done whereas people and then jesse <laughs> single's another one i mean I, you know another person that i respect hugely jesse single the journalist but he just rocks every day and i think how is he gets a lot of work done this guy how does he get all that work done because because if i was to do that i would just be distracted and depressed and unhappy because so i guess it's just again it's, it all goes back to personality types and and, and 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 i guess i guess people like you and jesse single are, are far more resilient than people like me um uh, who kind of i don't know, know the, if i'm
0: resilient but somehow it's this jekyll and hyde thing i'm a total conflict avoider kind of mouse in real life now I'm really embarrassed. Actually, I feel a little bit uh, upset that you noticed this in me, and now I feel ashamed. No,
1: no, no I don't know, because I admire it. Because, because, because things. I'm the opposite in my in my everyday life. I'm always getting into conflict with people, but on the on the social media, I'm just like, oh my god, no, 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 no. So, so no, I admire people like you, and I admire people like Jesse Single because I just don't have the, I don't have the fortitude for it, and I and I and I can't. It's really – and it's also a pragmatic thing. I'm a freelancer. I'm self-employed. If I get involved in that world, I'm not going to get any work done because I'm going to be constantly looking at my Twitter. Who's replied? Who's not replied? What can I say now? And, and that's it. So, that, so that's why I, I just I, – I, I, I literally – I've got the world's most boring Twitter feed. It's just, it's just about my work. And I throw a tweet on there and I run away. And to, try not to look at my not- and to try not to look at my notifications, hope that, <laughs> that you know, I, I pray for as, as little interaction as possible for people. And then when people are nice to me, I just say, thank you very much. And when people are horrible to me, I, I, give, I give them a little love heart and then I mute them just to confuse them.
0: <laughs>
1: what an excellent strategy. <laughs> yeah. It's like, confuse them. Why did he do that? He's liked me and now he's ignoring me yeah
0: I do suspect there's an inverse correlation between how interesting a person's Twitter feed is and how interesting their life is <laughs> I actually installed an app uh called self control and i which only allows me to be on Twitter for one and a half hours per day and I like the app because you cannot reprogram it yeah you know, once you've pressed the button, you can't get back in and I've done all these kinds of Things like I've uninstalled it on my phone and I've changed the password <laughs> to a password that I myself don't know so that I can't reinstall it on my phone easily. I've, oh, can you you not? Know, I've done all it? these things to keep myself off there. But I also find Instagram quite toxic because everyone is so sexy. And I do have a lot of friends who post a lot of selfies.
1: But that's the status thing again. You know, you've just been constantly throwing other people in your face. It makes you feel bad.
0: I have a friend who posts (laughs) daily selfies on Instagram. So generally, I just like them and then I scroll on by. And on YouTube too, I have a close friend on YouTube now who has made this meteoric rise and become a star in the YouTube beauty community. And I'm addicted to watching her videos because I know her, even though I'm not at all addicted to makeup, I'm not at all interested in makeup and beauty. She's very self-aware, so she comments on it herself. She's primarily a writer and a poet, so she's more interesting than your usual YouTube beauty commentator. But there's something weird about the fact that she's spending so much of her time um, talking about basically how pretty her face is and how to make it prettier. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's the world we're living in, owner. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, so it's been really great talking to you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Is there anything you'd like to say that you feel that we haven't touched on?
1: No, I think it's been a, it's been a very wide-ranging and um, entertaining chat. So thank you very much.
0: It has indeed. And I would really like to encourage everybody to go and read Will's book. We're talking in the abstract here, but his book is very colourful and vivid and concrete. In the anecdotes and stories it tells, they they are extraordinary stories which are also true. The ones at Esselen are particularly mind blowing. At one point, you describe um, the self esteem craze in a phrase which I think was, I felt was apt for your own book. You described it as a rapturous copulation of the ideas of Ayn Rand, Eslin and the Neoliberalists. Yes. I think that describes your book itself very well. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much. I will put. Links to uh, Will's website and Twitter handle and the book itself in the show notes. Thank you, Will. It's been absolutely lovely talking to you.
1: No, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Ina.
0: You're welcome. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for Ario magazine. Ario is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant. Edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor. Yours truly, at Ario, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ario and T are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ario a R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you are listening on a podcast app, Take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.